Murder is defined as the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another. However, being charged and convicted of murder isn't always as simple as a definition. With that said, let's talk murder. Welcome, 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 and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Sean. I am your host, Diamond Sean, and for those who may be new, let me bring you up to speed. Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Sean is a crime-based podcast that takes an inside look at the crime from the side of the accused. In each episode, we go beyond the headlines and get up close and personal to the story via the words of the individual charged with the crime. On this episode of Let's Talk Murder, we're going to talk the case of Mitchell Earl Clark. Now, Mr. Clark was convicted of murder in the state of Texas and is currently serving a life sentence. So as always, I'm going to break it down for you and give you the story from the side that the media posted. Now, with this case, we're not, I'm not going to do any media headlines. I'm going to go straight from um, straight from the Justia U.S. Law website. Now, this website has the information for the appeal that Mr. Clark filed. So, without that, without further ado, let's get into what he said. Now, this comes from the Court of Appeals, the 9th District of Texas at Beaumont. It's Mitchell Earl Clark Jr. versus the state of Texas. Let's talk it. A jury found appellant Mitchell Earl Clark Jr. guilty of murder. The jury determined Clark was a repeat felony offender and and sentenced him to 70 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Institutional Division. Now let's talk some factors. So with the appeal, there were some points raised by Mr. Clark. Now before I get into them, let me get into this breakdown for you as they provide it. Shakita Simon testified that during the early morning hours of December 15, 2002, she was leaving the club signature in Beaumont. She got into the front passenger seat of the Dodge Intrepid driven by Seabane with Slash in the backseat. The Intrepid had California license plates. As they were trying to leave, a man walked up to the Intrepid and said, Give me the gun. Seabane opened the console and the man reached across Simon and grabbed the gun out of the console. Simon then saw the man approach Vincent Lockett, a bouncer at the club. She saw the man have a couple of words with Lockett then shoot Lockett. Lockett fell, and the man shot him again. After unsuccessful attempts to leave the scene on foot and by another vehicle, the assailant got in the back seat of the Intrepid, shots were fired at the Intrepid as it left the scene, and the Intrepid proceeded across town to the Maida apartment. The Intrepid's four occupants exited the car and walked around the car for about 20 minutes. A van came, and they all four got into the van that took them to the Autumn Cove apartment, about five minutes from the Mater apartment. The van dropped off the assailant and Slash at the Autumn Cove apartment and then took Seabane and Simon to a hotel. Simon identified Clark at trial as the man who shot Lockett. At the time of trial, Simon had pending drug charges against her. She stated that around the date of the murder, Slash wore his hair in braids. She did not go to the police station until police approached her months after the shooting. She identified from a stack of pictures Seabane, Felix Neal, and Clark as people at the scene. 
She explained to Detective Tamayo that she and Seabane had dated on and off and that she knew Felix Neal from being around Beaumont. She also told Detective Tamayo that Neal was in the back seat. She identified Clark as Lucas' assailant. She testified that while she has been held at the Jefferson County Jail, Clark has sent her affidavits through jail mail for her to sign, stating that she identified the wrong person, but she refused. Troy, Troy's subject, testified that he and Lockett were working together as bouncers at the club signature on the early morning hours of December 15, 2002, around 2 a.m. Subject walked out of the front of the club and saw Lockett talking with another man. Subject walked by and slowed down to listen to make sure there was no trouble, and then continued walking to his car. He testified that when he walked by, he looked at the man talking to Lockett. Subject started his car because it was cold and went back into the club. He heard three gunshots and he ran back outside. He saw Lockett laying on the ground and Lockett said, he shot me. The man Subject saw Lockett talking to earlier was running away from the club trying to find a ride. The man jumped into the back seat of a dark-colored Dodge. Subject shot at the car. The people in the Dodge were trying to get out of the parking lot, and the Dodge hit a car on the way out. Subject identified Clark as the man he saw talking to Lockett right before Lockett was shot, and the man he saw running away and jumping into the Dodge. When the police arrived, Subject did not tell them he shot at the car. Later, he told the police that he had shot at the car and brought the 45 to one of the detectives. He picked out Clark from a police photo lineup about a month later. Although Subject had stated in his statement to the police the day after the shooting that he thought the man who shot Lockett had braids, he stated at trial that what he meant was that the guy didn't have long hair. If he had long hair, it was braided up. Sean Withers Sr., testified he was in Club Signature's parking lot around closing time on December 15, 2002. He heard gunshots and saw a man laying on the ground and another man standing over him with a gun. The man tried unsuccessfully to shoot the victim again. The assailant ran out of the parking lot looking for a ride. He ran back into the gate and got into the back seat of a Dodge with either a California or Louisiana license plate. The Dodge took off in a hurry hit another car, and kept on going. On three occasions after the murder, Withers was unable to identify the assailant from a photo lineup at the police station. At trial, Withers identified Clark as the assailant. Withers did not know Lockett personally, but had seen him as a bouncer at the club before. The jury heard evidence of how the crime scene was secured and evidence was collected. The shells found by the door of Club Signature and by the victim were 40 caliber shells, and the shells found by the gate of the parking lot were for three 40 caliber shells, five 45 caliber shells, and one spit bullet were retrieved from the scene. A damaged Dodge vehicle with California plates and holes in it was recovered from the Meta apartment. The only match to fingerprints pulled from the Dodge was Felix Neal, and those fingerprints were from rental papers in the car. Detectives also retrieved from the car a traffic ticket issued on December 14, 2002 to Felix Neal. A cigarette butt retrieved from the Dodge had DNA from a 
female on it. DNA testing of a blood stain from the steering wheel of the Dodge showed that Clark would not be excluded as a contributor, but that Lockett could be excluded as a contributor. Hair recovered from the front passenger seat of the Dodge was analyzed, and it was determined it could have been contributed by Clark. The autopsy revealed Lockett suffered two gunshot wounds in the back, with the cause of death being the upper gunshot wound where the bullet passed through Lockett's heart. Jeffrey Theroy, a major at the Jefferson County Correctional Facility where Clark and Simon were incarcerated, testified that it would be very unlikely that, considering the security measures in place, a male charged with murder housed in the Jefferson County Correctional Facility could approach a female inmate in order to have her sign affidavits. Theroy did acknowledge that if an inmate wanted to get mail to another inmate, they could send mail out to a family member and have the family member repackage it and send it to the inmate it was intended for. Detective Jesus Tamayo, lead investigator on the case, testified that Felix Santos Neal was a person of interest early in the investigation. He stated that the mother of Neal's baby lived in the Autumn Cove apartments around the time of Lockett's murder. The gun used to murder Lockett was never recovered. Tamayo identified Neal in Neal's prior mugshot and described him as wearing braids in his hair. Now, those were the facts presented with the appeal. Again, this is Mitchell Earl Clark versus the state of Texas. Now, I say that to take it back to this. I'm going to rewind some. Bear with me here a moment. Now, for the appeal, for the appeal that was filed, the appeal that was filed, forgive me, um, one of the points that Mr. Clark raises, let's call it, Clark argues the evidence is factually insufficient to support the conviction. In conducting a factual sufficiency review, we, we being the appeal, um, appeal board, we consider all of the evidence in a neutral light to determine whether the evidence supporting the verdict is too weak to support the finding of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. There goes my key terms, y'all. You know, I love the words reasonable doubt. So again, we consider all of the evidence in a neutral light to determine whether the evidence supporting the verdict is too weak to support the finding of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, or if the evidence of guilt, although adequate, is considered alone, if considered alone, is so greatly outweighed by the contrary proof that the jury's verdict is not rationally justified. Now, with that said, let's talk what their findings were after review. A neutral review of the entire record does not demonstrate that the proof of guilt is so obviously weak as to undermine the confidence of the jury's determination, nor does it demonstrate that the proof of guilt is greatly outweighed by contrary proof. The evidence is factually sufficient to support the verdict. As such, they overruled this issue as it was raised. Again, this is coming from the Justia U.S. Law site, Mitchell Earl Clark Jr. versus the state of, of Texas, the appeal from the 252nd District Court of Jefferson County. Now listen, I gave you all a lot. I gave it to you all as the appeal um, documentation is posted. Now let's before we 
looking more into that, let's hear from Mr. Clark himself. Because obviously, on Let's Talk Murder, we get to hear the story in the words of the accused as they gave it to me. I give it to you. Now, with that said, let's talk murder. Here's what Mr. Clark had to say. I've been in the shoe 10 years now. The administration has continuously used my disciplinary history as a vehicle platform to retaliate against me. I'm from South Central Los Angeles, California. I was extradited to Texas in February of 2003 on first-degree murder charges. Before these allegations were brought up, I was a family man, raising my kids and managing financially with a stable job that provided enough income to support my family. I'm an ex-felon. I served three years in the California State Prison, made parole, and discharged parole in 14 months of my freedom. Stayed away from criminal activity my whole three years while I had my freedom. The evidence used against me on the first-degree murder case was hella weak. I had a hung jury in my first trial in 2003, July of 2003, 11 to 1, not guilty. The state's strongest, the state's strongest witness predicated around a hood rat female testimony that was dubious from jump. She lied vicariously. My attorney questioned her about the identification. She said, Beaumont Police Department showed her a photo book of guys who were from Beaumont, Texas, who were arrested at some point in their life. Over 300 photos. I've never been arrested in Beaumont, Texas. 90 days after the murder was committed, her name was mentioned. That she was at the scene when I allegedly walked over to the car she was in grabbed a gun from the driver, then walked up to the victim, shot him twice in the face. When he fell down, I discharged the gun three more times in his chest. While the autopsy specialist testified and clearly stated the cause of death was from two bullets in which the victim was shot in his back. The victim's co-worker who testified said I had long braids resembling dreadlocks, and which is false because I didn't have no hair at all. When I was paroled and I stepped back on to the scene to society with a bald face, the first the first witness, she had pending charges, so her testimony definitely wasn't credible. A hung jury was declared. My second trial, I got found guilty based on the fact that I was railroaded, not just being ingested judicial procedures, but my watered-down attorney conspired against me as well. He told my character witness he didn't need their testimony this time around. Now, my character witness in my first trial's testimony was exclusively based around my actual whereabouts, which was at my two nieces' birthday party on the, on the date of the crime in Los Angeles, California. LAPD seized the pictures of me at the birthday party, along with a film roll of other pictures. They left a receipt of items they confiscated when my mom's home was raided. 
photos was one of the items on the receipt, but the judge, Lane Walker, refused to press LAPD to release the photos into evidence. So my attorney, yes, he sided with the district attorney in my second trial. The deck was stacked against me. My whereabouts was discredited, and the DA, shaking my head, he claims to the fact to do that due to Hurricane Rita, the few photos of me that my attorney gave him to submit in evidence proving I never had hair, he said the evidence was, was damaged, mainly the few pictures. My whole case was based around mistaken identification. And to your question, I did not commit the crime. The Jefferson County judicial system has a long history of corruption, and there are facts to prove it. Judge Lane Walker, Jefferson County 262nd Criminal District Court Judge, that was my trial judge, was caught up in a big corruption scandal in 2014. There are several articles of his corruption online. When I asked Mr. Clark if there was any what, what words he would say to the listeners given the opportunity, he said, I would say for your podcast viewers to reflect just how unjust the judicial system really is. I really don't have what you're looking for as far as the admissions to guilt. I declare my innocence to a crime I never committed from day one, and it still stands. People's lives do matter inside this bar, just the same as outside. Again, this letter is directly from Mr. Clark, Mr. Clark Jr. himself. He's currently serving a life sentence for he said some words. So we have the state's primary witness being someone who had pending drug charges. We have his key witness who was used in his first trial not being used at his second trial. We have some photographs that could allegedly prove he was in another state at the time that the time at, at the time that the crime was committed as well as photos proving that he had a bald head, whereas people were saying that the shooter had hair or had braids or something to that effect. There's a lot here. There's a lot. So for the first trial to be a hung jury, then the second trial to be Mr. Clark being found guilty. Let's, let's weigh this. Let's weigh this from a criminal justice perspective as a whole, element by element. Now, from a judicial standpoint, let's go back to the appeal. So, with his appeal, Mr. Clark presents five issues on appeal. He first argues the trial court abused its discretion in denying him an oral hearing on his motion for a new trial. Second, he states that the evidence is factually insufficient to support the conviction. He also contends the trial court erred in failing to suppress any in-court identifications of him as the assailant. Next, he maintains the trial court abused its discretion when it limited his closing argument to 16 minutes. Last, he asserts the trial court abused its discretion in admitting 
strenuous evidence of gang affiliation during the punishment phase. Mm. For five issues, Mr. Clark presented on his appeal. One of the main points that stood out to me that Mr. Clark was arguing, Clark argued that the trial court abused its discretion while admitting extraneous acts of gang violence during the punishment phase. At the punishment phase of the trial, evidence regarding a defendant's character is relevant. Evidence of a gang membership is relevant to show character of the defendant. So what they did was, when it was time for Mr. Clark to be sentenced, the court allowed for his alleged past gang activity to be presented for the jury. Now you know, this is something that naturally, you know, will increase a person's um, sentence, or you, you know, like, kind of have that feeling that it would, um, end on some time. So let's see how this broke down. Detective Jesus Gonzalez, assigned to the Central Detective Gang Enforcement Unit with the Los Angeles Police Department, testified during the punishment phase. He testified that he knew Clark and that based on his experience in the gang's task force, he identified Clark as a member of the sub, the sub clique 59 Hoover Gang. He explained that the gang commits violent crimes in order to carry out their criminal enterprises or to protect their gang membership. At the state's request, the trial court directed Clark to remove his shirt, and Detective Gonzalez explained to the jury are Clark's tattoos related to the gang. Gonzalez testified that he believed that Lockett's murder was committed in the furtherance of the Hoover gang. Because of the evidence of Clark's gang because the evidence of Clark's gang membership is relevant to his character, the appeal said that they must determine whether the evidence was prejudicial, was more prejudicial than probative. Under Rule 403 of the Texas School of Evidence, a trial court may exclude relevant evidence if its probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. Rule 403 only applies where a clear disparity exists between the uh, the offered evidence's degree of prejudice and its probative value. Upon this record, the appeals board said, we cannot say that the probative value of the evidence of Clark's gang membership was substantially outweighed by its prejudice. Again, they overruled Clark's issue, and the trial court's judgment is affirmed. Dang. So based on the pictures I've seen of Mr. Clark, he has a bald head. So how do we go from a bald head individual being committed for the crime after the person who allegedly did the crime had hair, possibly had long hair, if they had long hair was in braids? There's a lot going on. Now from a criminal standpoint, here's my question. With the second trial, when why would the attorney tell Mr. Clark's key witness that they weren't needed. See, now that's what throws me for a loop. As an attorney, you should be pulling everything out the bag that you can to ensure your client's innocence is proven. Not only proven, proven far beyond any measure we can think of. You don't take shortcuts when it comes to proving a person's innocence. And to say that the person, the witness for Mr. Clark wasn't needed? Come on now. Obviously, they were important enough that they were used in the first trial 
naturally, why are they not important enough that they're used in the second trial? I mean, come on now. That now that for me, nah, shorty. Like that right there, that right there, baby. That that for me, yeah, that's the it for me. So let's take a look. Let's let's take a look. What kind of a defense possibly? Because you know, y'all know I like to do a little bit of research. So let's see what I can come up with. Now, let me back up real quick. Before we get into a possible defense, we got to look at a few things. A few things. The mens rea, which is the intent, and the actus reus, which is the guilty act. Now, I don't know the intent. Based on what I read and what I was able to find and what I read to you, I can't really see the intent. So, this individual who is alleged to be Mr. Clark is having words with the bouncer words lead to the bouncer being shot. I don't I don't know. I, I for me right there, I can't determine any kind of intent. Now obviously the actus reus, the guilty act, would be the shooting itself, like the actual committing of the um shots being fired and the deceased being shot. But again, was it Mr. Clark? Was it somebody who had hair? Was it Mr. Clark? in a whole nother fucking state. It wasn't even in Texas. Now, murder, the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. So now, here we go again with the word premeditated. If this crime took place during some words, during a debate, during some back and forth, it was something that happened in the heat of, from my, you know, my thinking. So I wouldn't consider that premeditated. So then, then the question is, should it be murder? Well, of course, we know charges can be elevated um, depending on the circumstances of the crime. So we take it as it is and we understand he was charged with murder. Okay, so murder is the case that they gave Mr. Clark. The mens rea, the intent, I don't see it. I don't know. We're, we're going off of a an appeals recollection of words being exchanged, words then led to the shots being fired and the deceased being killed. The guilty act would be the shooting itself. Now, let's see what... You know, I can't think of a defense. See, this is one of those cases where nothing textbook would apply. And I say that because, from a textbook standpoint, whatever took place in trial one, for me, I would think should then again take place in trial two. All of the same evidence, all of the same key witnesses, all the same witnesses, all the elements, all the elements should be the same. Now, what should happen, it should be a more advanced trial. We went through it once, and there was a hung jury, 11 to 1, not guilty. Now, with that, since we got a hung jury, and not guilty was where it was hung on, we know that the defense obviously did a good job to defend, to defend Mr. Clark. So the state first go-round, I would infer, did not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt for Mr. Clark to be convicted of murder. Now, on the flip side, at trial two, you don't take away elements from trial one. If anything, you use the same elements, you use the same development when it comes to the tactical approach of presenting the evidence, and if anything, you increase the level of defense that you provide the client, you don't subtract from 
should definitely be using it the second go around and increasing it. So yet, Mr. Park gets convicted of murder. Like I said, nothing is textbook, so I don't even understand. I wonder. I would love to know what the attorney was thinking conceptually that they decided to take away Mr. Park's key witness. The key witness for the defense the first go-round should have been the key witness for the defense the second go-round. Now let's talk about this the sentencing phase. So for the sentencing phase, let's see if I can recall. So we know he got life. Let's just be clear. So, so Mr. Park received life in prison. I mean, it it just is what it is. Like that's fucking crazy. Um, I don't know. This is let's go back. So there's this other point. So I, before I get into sentencing, let's talk closing arguments. One thing that we all understand when it comes to a criminal case from a legal standpoint. Closing arguments is the attorney's opportunity to wrap that package, put a bow on it, and present it to the jury. You've argued your case, you've presented your evidence, you've presented your witnesses, you've given them the motherfucking kit and caboodle. Now, in your closing arguments, you're going to wrap that shit up and deliver it in a bow. Mr. Clark raised the factor that the Court limited the closing arguments to 16 minutes. Let's let's get into this. As the appeal um, documentation reads, Clark also argues the trial court abused its discretion in limiting his closing argument to 16 minutes. Although trial courts have broad discretion in determining the length of arguments during a trial, the restrictions upon the parties by the trial court must be reasonable. We should consider, but are not limited to consider, the following non-exclusive factors in determining determining whether Clark was allotted a reasonable amount of time for closing arguments. One, the quantity of the evidence. Two, the duration of the trial. Three, conflicts in the testimony. Four, the seriousness of the offense. Five, the complexity of the case. Six, where the counsel used the time allotted effectively, and seven, where the counsel set out what issues were not discussed because of the time limitation. Get into what they said. We consider the first three factors together. The record indicates that the state presented eight witnesses and Clark presented two witnesses during the two-day trial. The record indicates that the relevant conflicts in testimony addressed by defense counsel's cross-examination included whether the assailant wore braids in his hair, whether DNA evidence linked Clark to the murder, and the reliability of the in-court identifications of Clark as the assailant. Although the charge was a serious one, murder, the case was not a complex case. Clark argues on appeal that he needed additional time to address the misidentification and complex scientific analysis of fingerprints, DNA, and hair. He also needed to emphasize that the trial witnesses only provide a small
small picture of the investigation that the words cannot be excluded can be misleading. The certain factors could have affected the witness's memory that reasonable doubt can exist despite the trial witness's testimony and that a whole new case can be established against Felix Nick. The trial court has broad discretion regarding the order of the trial. A defendant should be allotted a reasonable time to present a closing argument. However, applying the factors as set forth in Dang, which Dang is the case that is referenced, to the record before us, we cannot say the trial court abused its discretion by limiting the time for closing arguments to 16 minutes. We overrule this issue. Shit! At every angle we turn, Mr. Park is being overruled. So they're saying that based on the two-day trial, based on the evidence presented, the witnesses presented, and the cross-examination provided, that 16 minutes is not an abuse of power by the trial court. Fuck, 16 minutes, listen, an episode of Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Keyson is longer than 16 minutes for the most part. The closing arguments are 16 minutes? Okay, so, it's not an abuse of, tr- of the trial court. Okay, maybe not. Um, a, t- a two-day trial, you've been 18 hours, I mean, eight hours a day, maybe? What, the same 16 hours? The same a minute per hour? Like, fuck out of here. 16 minutes? Come on now. Now, but here's the question. How powerful, how powerful was the closing argument considering we know that there were some items that were in trial one that were now excluded from trial two. So, Mr. Clark raised the claim that his second attorney for the second trial was in cahoots with the DA. So, you have to ask yourself, does the removal of Mr. Park's key witness, does the mediocre cross-examination as detailed, and then does the 16-minute restriction of closing argument prove this point, lead to this point, help us understand this point? What are your thoughts? I need to know what you think. So Mr. Clark sits here convicted of murder with a life sentence. Because the LAPD was never pressed for photos that would have showed him being in L.A. at his his niece's party on the date that the crime was committed. We have the state's key witness being someone who had their own pending charges for drugs. And furthermore, not only that, we have factors that were in trial one that were not used at trial two. Now, that just, for me, I'm sorry, that sounds like a miscarriage of justice because this man's life, this man's life, Mr. Clark's life, literally, literally, was determined by this. His life, his life was determined by this. Furthermore, you get, you allow for his alleged gang affiliation to be presented at the sentences, the sentencing, then you have him take his shirt off so the tattoos can be broken. What the fuck? First of all, this is not a body art class. And I'm sorry. I don't see the one has to do with the other. So now you're trying to say, so, okay, here we go. Back 
to the mens rea. So now am I to infer, based on what it read in the appeal breakdown, that the mens rea, the intent of this case, had to do with Mr. Clark being an, an alleged gang member? And then let me just let me just go back. At the state's request, the trial court directed Clark to remove his shirt, and Detective Gonzalez explained to the jury how Clark's tattoos related to the gang. Gonzalez testified that he believed that Lockett's murder was committed in the furtherance of the Hoover gang. So, from what I understand, with Mr. Clark being from L.A., I would assume that this Hoover gang would be a California-based gang. And not to say that they couldn't be national, but for the most part, he was in the California chapter. So what the fuck does the killing of a bouncer in Texas see there's there's so many there's so many questions like okay if you're gonna use that at sentencing and that's gonna be a key factor oh he's an alleged gang member and gang does this to to further their gang cause okay so you're saying this so you're telling me this with with the proof um speculation and proof are two different things. Can be proven. What's their proof? Beyond, beyond what you all? A reasonable doubt. You know, that's my keyword. So beyond a reasonable doubt. So what you're telling me is based on the female who was in the who was in the intrepid, who also had her own pending drug charges, based on her testimony, the fingerprints that were not Mr. Clark, the hair that was not one hundred percent confirmed to be Mr. Clark, but couldn't quote unquote exclude him. You're going to tell me that all of that combined proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed the murder? Was there no cameras? Was, was there no video? Was there no... I mean, there was no cameras in the whole area. This was, this was back in, like, 03. Okay, so maybe there wasn't as many cameras. But there's just too many, too many, too many, um, too many unknown isms. And you have this other individual, this, this Mr. Neal individual, Okay, so allegedly he was a suspect in the beginning because his um children's mom stayed in one of the apartment complexes, but there's no there's no real mention of him past that. Was the idea explored? Was it not? What was what was the findings? Again, where's the defense? What was the defense from Mr. Clark? Hurricane Rita? Because of Hurricane Rita, some of the most vital pictures are missing. Come on now. As a justice system, we have to do right. I'm a believer. You know I'm a believer in liberty and justice for all. And with liberty and justice for all, this for me, this is not justice. This is a miscarriage of justice and at the least deserves a third trial with an attorney that's going to not take away something that was done in trial one and going to present the factors as a whole and give me more than a 16-minute closing argument. I just, I, listen, here's my question to you all. What are your thoughts? You have an appeal. Everything that the appeal, everything that Mr. Clark filed in his appeal was um overruled, in essence, in the trial court's Standings were affirmed. Mr. Clark sits convicted of murder with an alleged strong defense that he was in California the day.
evidence wasn't around no more because allegedly Hurricane Rita destroyed it. Um, some evidence is with a in a different jurisdiction and they weren't asked for it. And the testimony for the state, the state's key witness is a person who has their own pending drug charges. So, you know, we kind of know a lot. People tend to CYA, cover their own ass. So is this not something I don't... Mm. Mr. Clark raises a lot of valid points, and he stands by his innocence. Mr. Clark is saying he is innocent. And as he said since day one, he still says it to this day. He's innocent of the crime that he was charged and ultimately convicted of. So as we talk murder, I have to ask you, your opinion, what your thoughts were. Let me know at Twitter at Let's Talk Murder and on Instagram and Facebook at LTMWDK. Again, that's on Twitter at Let's Talk Murder and Instagram and Facebook at LTMWDK. I'm Diamond Kisan and we've just talked murder. Until next time, stay safe and never be afraid to talk murder. This is a Diamond Kisan production.